Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 16. I'm delighted to say hello and welcome to my guest Chris Ratcliffe and I shall immediately ask Chris to introduce himself because he will be far better at it than I could. Hi, um, my name's Chris Ratcliffe. I am a sometimes car blogger, car photographer um, and I'm also an IT security professional and joining those two things together i gave a talk at a i gave a talk at a, a security conference last year about connected cars yes yes we did cover that uh, on the sister show for the motoring podcast it's an excellent talk and i will have a link to that video in this in these show notes as well um, because i thoroughly recommend anybody who's got just the vaguest interest in understanding um the perils or risks or potential risks of connected cars, um, uh, what they, what directions they can come from and what we need to be aware of as customers, consumers. Um, and I, I think, I think it was a great way to uh, explain it to people who, um, don't have as great knowledge as say you do technically. Um, it was done in such a way that it was easily accessible to people with less knowledge, i.e. me. Um, so uh, I, I, I will make sure that people get to see that. And I, I thoroughly recommend that you, anyone who hasn't seen it goes and see it. Thank you. So, well, um, I think we should start at the beginning, uh, which will be, let's, you say you're a, you are a part-time blogger, uh, photographer, Obviously, quite a keen interest in the motoring yes. side of things, which is primarily why you're here. Yeah. Do you remember, or have you been told in family tales around the fire <laughs> on the long winter nights, when you first got into cars, or what was your first interest in it? That's a really, real question. I Cars, one of those things that I've always been interesting for kind of as long as i can remember um mm. growing up i think the 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 big i think probably the main influence was we would watch uh formula one every race as a family would all sit down um and watch f1 but the i didn't i haven't didn't really come from a sort of car loving family we wouldn't wouldn't go out to sort of car events or or see particularly exotic cars um basically i think whenever grandstand had touring cars or or anything with wheels and an engine i'd sort of be sat in front of it and Mm. would sort of take it all in and when i think when i was at school you know the kids were talking about ian rush and john barnes and all of these footballers who i had no idea who they were but i was there sort of talking about (laughs) thierry bootson and jj leto and um (laughs) all of this sort of thing because that was that was kind of my um my thing sort of from a very very early age i mean i even remember having and i was kind of wish i still had this because i think it'd probably be an interesting oddity but i even had a brabham bedspread that was like an f1 cockpit printed on a duvet cover which sounds weird and i i i definitely had it and i can find no reference to them anywhere in the world um (laughs) But then I think as I got older, I was probably about sort of eight or nine, and there was a partwork came out, partwork magazine, and it was something like the Encyclopedia of Supercars, and I think I only ever got issue one, and that was the Ferrari Testarossa. And 
I knew kind of next to nothing about Ferrari as a road car manufacturer, but I kind of knew the the brand and the heritage and the mystique. And I kind of devoured this um, this magazine about the the um, the Testarossa, not knowing at all what half of it actually meant. <laughs> but kind of well, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then one day we were we were on a family trip somewhere in my dad's gunmetal grey Montego saloon with a kind of beige velour interior from memory. And we were driving through some bit on the outskirts of Lincolnshire and I saw a Testarossa filtering right into a into a car park. And I probably saw it for all of about four seconds and my little head kind of exploded. And that was all I talked about for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> and then, but to, to show you how little sort of general car of I have, I think the kind of the other big memory I have of cars was when I was about 15, 16. And bearing in mind, I think I sort of, Grew up with, I mean, yeah, I'd watch Top Gear religiously. I'd watch Top Gear Motorsport religiously, and it was kind of the the Chris Goffey into Jeremy Clarkson and Quentin Wilson and Tiffany Dell sort of era. Hmm. And I knew I knew the McLaren F1, but completely by chance, we were walking down Park Lane, and it was when McLaren had that little dealership, and oh, yeah. it was not long after the the car came out. And there were literally people sort of nose pressed up against the glass looking at this silver F1 in the showroom. And, you know, me sort of prime teenage years sort of like, oh, my God, McLaren F1. Completely missing the fact that somebody walked out the showroom, walked across the pavement to the McLaren F1 that they had parked on the street behind me the whole time. And I just remember sort of following them, watching them get in, obviously sort of shuffled across. Mm. And the noise that it made starting, you know, that high-pitched starter motor and then that, the sort of the, the flare of the V12 that Henry Catchpole described brilliantly um, recently in one of his videos, that kind of just stuck with me. You know, it's just seared into my consciousness kind of ever since. Um, and yeah, and. I think that was about the same time as well that the Clarkson video would sort of come out at Christmas and then be watched until it wore out over about the next eight mm. months. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's kind of from there, you know, then sort of getting old enough to read like Evo when that came out and Car Magazine and Auto Car and just kind of throwing myself headlong into it, really. So did you, um, while you were at school, did you tailor your lesson choices or what you were doing in lessons to to a car <laughs> theme where you could where you you had that freedom um i i more often than not i didn't actually um i i was a huge cycling fanatic growing up um mm -hmm. and to the point that i started i was writing for a mountain bike magazine about 2000 and I basically had stuff left over, so I started what would now be called a blog. <laughs> God, I sound, like, I sound like an old man in a rocking chair back in my day. Um, when the internet was black and white. <laughs> when it was all geocities as far as the eye could see. Um, <laughs> um, I, had, I had this, this, this um, new site 
which now unfortunately has vanished if off into the into the archives of history. Um, but yeah, cycling was my 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 sort of my whole world, and I was driving back from a bike show with the guy I did the the website with at the time, and um, I was I was talking about cars and talking about weight transfer and talking about the parallels between sort of cycling and what we did and 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 cars and he sort of kind of went, why aren't you writing and talking about cars as eloquently as you do about bikes? And I kind of thought, well, I don't, you know, <laughs> I think when you're, when you're kind of outside the world and particularly then as well, when the internet was kind of a hobby thing, hmm. the idea that you could just sort of start talking about cars without the experience of driving them and without, be able to ring up manufacturers and say, Hey, you know, can you send me the new focus yeah. was just sort of completely alien. Um, but then we got, there was, a, I had a real stroke of luck when, um, speaking of websites that I don't think any longer exist when drivers Republic came along, um, <laughs> there was a good friend of mine, Martin, who said, you know, come down, you know, you should join, you should get involved. And out of that, I started talking with, um, so it was Martin Spain who got me into it. I started talking with um, people I'd had no involvement before. So like Matt uh, Lange, Jack Wood, uh, and Jamie Wolfkale. And sort of between us, we went, why don't we start a, a, a blog? And, and that's how, uh, that's how Drive Cult was, was born, kind of out of the embers of, of, of Drivers Republic. Um, so from there on, it was, we had this sort of nucleus of, of car geeks that would sort of egg each other on and we had an outlet for our ideas and our content. Oh, that's cool. You, um, I'm guessing then that, um, thinking of careers and stuff like that, the motoring industry was not, uh, not a target or not imagined. Or... I th- growing up, I was always into computers and mm. I, my my mechanical skills because of course from the outside you think all of the motoring industry is basically just all people who are really good at at engineering um my my mechanic skills are are, are generally awful and i was just <laughs> in, in, you're amongst friends <laughs> I, i've got i got a, a plastic v8 uh, engine kit for christmas and i'm i'm sure i can make that blow up somehow um <laughs> But yeah, I, I just always into computers and always had a bit of an interest in in security. Um, and yeah, the the car industry was never something that I thought I I, I could really sort of get into. Um, mm. So instead, I sort of followed the IT path and have meandered my way into uh, into working in security, which is which is it, nice in a way because it means that the you know the day job and and the, what you do for fun, kind of are nicely separate, but uh, it was quite. Ooh, are they separate now? Well, oh. well, they're blurring together <laughs> nicely. Um, <laughs> one of the things that was really interesting was seeing car security start to be an issue, and I got um, I got an app for my phone, the brilliant Harry's Lap Timer for when I'm doing track nonsense, and one of the things that you could get for it is a little Bluetooth dongle that you stick in your um, diagnostic port 
and it can feed information from the engine into Harry's lap timer to overlay with video and with timing information. Mm-hmm. And so I got it excitedly, stuck it in the M3, and it didn't work. And I was kind of like, I was starting to read up about why it wasn't working and what was different with my car and different encoding standards and all this sort of stuff. And then these talks started appearing and these papers started being published about car security based on similar sorts of things to what I had been researching for my, um, just sort of for my fun and for my, uh, my track exploits. And that was, that was the point where you, I kind of started thinking, wait a minute, these two are starting to to cross over. And then uh, particularly about the last sort of three years or so, the, the features that are now coming along and kind of casting a sort of cynical or critical eye over them, you sort of start thinking, wait a minute, the, why is that doing that? And why is that there? And why is that this way? And what would happen if you do that? And it was that sort of security mentality sort of kicks in and mm. you're like, this is starting to get really interesting. Yes, there. Is, uh, I think it's um, particularly it's being reported more uh, in the more general uh, motoring press and is, and is uh, very recently started eking into mainstream press mm. is the security side of things. Um, but I think that's on the back of the, oh, I hate the phrase, Internet of Things, um, <laughs> IoT, um, which uh, is it could be awesome, but at the moment is horrific in my opinion. Um, in what is happening and how it how it is being executed by many many companies. <laughs> um, but I think it's through the, through that uh, more uh, understanding. Well, not necessarily understanding, but more awareness is there mm. in the general public uh, that oh, hang on we might need to think about this. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think there's definitely a, there's definitely a feeling at the moment that, <laughs> I, I know I mentioned this on Twitter to you the other day, and I mentioned it to a few other people. Um, what I keep referring to as Goldblum's law, which is his line from Jurassic Park, which is your hmm. scientists spent so long wondering if they could, nobody stopped to ask and think if they should. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's it's interesting actually that a lot of the research that's being done from a security point of view, um, the work that Ken Munro had out recently with the Mitsubishi Outlander, I think it was, mm. yeah, the, the work he does and, and his firm Pentest Partners does, they do a lot of Internet of Things testing, as scary as that is, and they basically applied that same method methodology to a car as they have done to a toaster and to a fridge. And that was, it was really interesting to talk to him actually about it because it kind of makes you realize where the technology is coming from that's being put into cars. It's not, at the moment, I don't think it's really being that bespokely, um, bespokely, is that a word? Bigly. Um, it's not, <laughs> it's not being created for, for the automotive industry, it's being kind of retrofitted and kind of stuck on to make it work. And so that you can have an app and go, look, it's got an app and it's, it's all internet enabled and it's futuristic. 
Yeah, uh, sometimes I worry that someone's just gone on a Reddit community and copied some code and I, or into into uh, is it uh, GitHub? GitHub, um, GitHub, and Stack Overflow are the yeah yeah. And they, they've gone on somewhere like that and gone. Oh, we need it to do this. Is someone? Oh, they have great. We'll just <laughs> cut and paste that and <laughs> shove it in. Um, that that sometimes I fear that's what happens um, because people are you know nobody's deliberately trying to produce. Uh, something that has a vulnerability. Nobody's mm. deliberately trying to produce a bad product. No, we understand that. I mean, I know sometimes I, some, by sometimes I mean often, <laughs> harp on and on about how uh, there are, I have the perception, you know, I, I feel that there are some manufacturers that treat this not perhaps in the way that I'd like it to be treated. Mm. Um, whether that's how they approach it in installing it in the first place or how they approach dealing with anyone who raises an issue um, or that, that sort of thing. Um, so, so, you know, I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying people are maliciously doing bad things or putting out poor products, mm. but they, I think they just don't understand sometimes because they put people who are paying the checks don't understand what the security side of things actually needs to be. Yes. Yeah. And, and, I think it's more, it's kind of more fundamental than that, that the architecture that a lot of cars currently sit on, although some are now starting to move away from it, um, the CAN bus network, so this relatively flat, very open network, which hooks up everything from, um, you know, reversing camera switching on on the screen to remote central locking to, you know, AC to, um, you know, spark plug firing and sensor readings from the engine. So is this it, it, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to, uh, play the part of someone who doesn't know. Very much yet. <laughs> it's not going to be much of a stretch for me. Don't worry. Um, but is this that, uh, connected up with that diagnostic port? Yes, that we that we um, probably will know about that. You know, if you have a fault comes up on your screen, or there's something wrong, uh, a garage can plug in. Usually in the dashboard and the driver's side, generally they plug in and it will come out with a code, and that code will say, you know, it's this, mm. that, and the other. Is it connected with that? It can be. Um, okay. This is this is one of the other great things is that if you ever start researching car electronics, you realise just how different each car is and it's so very very hard to find an absolute where this is always connected to that um okay so canvas predominantly is what every part of the car uses to talk to each other so for example um if you are so there will normally be two networks on a car as well again general case so there will be one part that covers the engine um, gearbox, things like that, things that tend to be need higher bandwidth, more data, or or less latency. So, obviously, you know, a car that is, uh, an engine, sorry, that's looking for ignition knock, you know, being able to very very quickly vary ignition timing, you know, that's obviously a critical part of 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 the engine yeah. uh, and the running of it. There will then be another network within the car that kind of deals with um, interior function and, and other functions of the car. So, for example, um, I had my old four Focus. The temperature gauge would only have two positions. It would either be 
um, at zero, or it would be absolutely bang on 12 o'clock, you know, right in the middle of its range. Yeah, uh, Sorry, to, I'm going to just pause you there, because when you said that, I then was in mine, because I had one at the time, and I was in... Oh, yes. I know what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've interrupted no, no, you. No, no, no. It was just, a, it was, yes, there is, there is off and there. Yeah. That was all. But, and, and this is what's interesting was that that gauge doesn't actually show you the temperature of the engine. It's like a fault indicator. So when the car reaches a certain temperature, a, a message goes, so the engine temperature goes to the ECU. And I say the ECU, there can be, dozens of ECUs uh, and dozens of computer management units in the car. But I say ECU because it makes it easier. So the temperature reading goes to the ECU because it monitors it for um, for engine protection. And then when it reaches a certain level, it sends a message to the dashboard saying, right, you can now display correct temperature. And if it ever overheats, it would then move to the right. And you would, you know, that that's that display. But it can be all sorts of functions. So you turn on your headlights. That sends a message to the, to, the, to the control unit. That sends a message to the headlamp unit. That turns on the light. That then sends back a response. And you're actually surprisingly sort of um, separated from a lot of these functions by the CAN network because it, it means rather than having one circuit for the lights, one circuit for this light, one circuit for the for the locks – you can kind of connect everything together and then everything can kind of talk together. It makes things a lot easier to install, makes things a lot more flexible. Um, and in fact, actually, this is one of the things that I saw with, when I was talking to, to Ken about the, the Mitsubishi um, system, one of the things that I didn't realize was actually how interconnected a lot of activities are. So, Say you unlock a car, you know, remote central locking, you blip the car and it unlocks. And in your head, yeah. you think that's one activity. What some of the work that he was doing, um, what they uncovered from that was actually when you unlock a car, you open the doors, obviously, mm. turn on the interior light, you disable the alarm, you might sound the horn or you might flash the lights if that's part of it. And mm. actually, the app, rather than saying, okay, please unlock the car, would say, okay, please undertake this series of activities in this order. So essentially like a macro. Mm. Um, and it, it kind of, when you start thinking about it like that, it, the ability to be able to have different things talking to each other and the logic that goes with it, you can actually start doing some quite interesting things. But the security of that has always relied on essentially the door locks. Because if you're outside the car, you can't affect what's inside the car unless you open mm. the doors and then, you know, there'll be evidence of entry and, and, and what have you. Yeah. So what manufacturers seem to have done, and it's sometimes hard to get confirmation of this, um, <laughs> they, they, they kind of go, ah, well, if we have a, a uh, you know a, a 4G unit or a Wi-Fi unit that interfaces into this network, we can do all the same things that you would have been able to do otherwise if you were inside the car. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, so what's stopping somebody doing things that they shouldn't be able to? Ah, well, the app won't let them. Right. So 
Um, <laughs> yes. And this was um, one of the one of the really interesting things with the. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes. That's your your line. Um, the <laughs> so I think one of the really big breaches of this was when uh, two security researchers found that Jeep. There was a certain model of Jeep that was essentially open to the internet, and yes. it was. Um, it, I mean, it was a huge, huge story, and I think it was a really interesting sort of use case, um, and it was. So there's two guys. There was uh, Chris Valasek and there was Charlie Miller, who are now working on vehicle security. I think for Uber. Yes, I believe so. Um, uh, definitely one of them is. Yes, definitely one of them. And it, it, I watched one of their talks. There's a big security conference in Vegas called DefCon, and they're going through this uh, through this talk. And somebody said to me afterwards, "You could do whole talks about the stuff they gloss over simply because they've got so much content to fill in." Um, but what's what they do ethically is that they basically disclose everything that they've found as part of their research. So you can there's a PDF you can you can you can read that goes into this is the car, this is what we tried, this is this is the tools that we used to do it, this was what we found, this was how it could be exploited in like seventy or hundred pages of detail. Um and it's the they had two cars. So there's there's one paper that they they published that covers two cars. One is the Toyota Prius, which they'd already started mucking about with, and that was okay. We're inside the car. We've hooked a computer up to the, the computer system of the car. Let's see what we can make it do. Um, yeah, including. God bless them. They uh, found they could disable the ABS pumps by putting um, disable the ABS by putting the pumps into a test mode. And the way that they proved this was they rolled into one of their garages, ran this thing, and then had no brakes and ended up crashing into the back of their garage. Um, it's fantastic sort of empirical research. Um, but what they also found so th- so that was that was one. Um, Side where that was the year before, wasn't it? I think they carried. They, they did a bit more research. So they did the Prius initially, and then they sort of carried it on in this in this second paper. Mm. Um, but what they found was that the the Jeep that they they featured, they could actually exploit it without, well, without any alteration or without any access to the vehicle. Yeah. And that's the point where you kind of go, oh. Okay, this is now scary. Science fiction stuff's a bit real now. <laughs> well, it really is because I think it. Mm. You know, people talk about there's there's often things that come up about car theft, and you know, having your car broken into or having it stolen is it's horrible. But the idea of you're driving down the motorway and suddenly you haven't got any brakes, or you know, the car suddenly starts accelerating, and you know, there's you in the car and there's potentially your family in the car. That's a really sort of primal fear. Yeah, or it suddenly goes on a different route. Yeah, yeah. Oh, or, 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 I think that they did it. I can't remember if they did it with the Jeep or the or the Prius. They they managed to get it so that it would initiate its self parking mechanism while going forward at about thirty miles an hour. And you know, stuff like that. It, it, it's it's really, really sort of 
scary. And I think a lot of that was because what they found with the app was that, so you as a user, you'd sign into the app. You would ask it to, let's say, you know, flash the headlights, something like that. Mm. That would go to a Jeep, to their servers. That would then send a message to the car saying, please flash your lights. What nobody seems to have looked at or considered was what happens if you bypass going through Jeep's infrastructure and just go straight to the car. Mm. And they found that the car was essentially open to the internet with no none of the authentication checks because who you were was being confirmed by the app, except when you take mm. the app out, suddenly there's no there's no checks at all. And the fallout from that I think highlights the other side of security, which is, okay, how do we update? How do we fix this problem? Um, and yeah, Tesla are, are fantastic for doing updates and for pushing them out over the air um, without any sort of user involvement. But I think I think it caught Jeep on the on the hop to the point that they were sending out branded kind of USB cards to uh, to customers. Saying, oh, yeah. Yes, which as if you happen to be a social engineer as an athlete godsend. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I think that there is, I think there's really, there's two things with, with security. I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to smartphones because I think both for security and for connected cars generally, I think they're a really good indicator of where a lot of this needs to go in the future. But you know, you find an issue, particularly something as catastrophic as this. You say, okay, how quickly can we get a fix out? How do we get the fix out? How can we be sure that, um, you know, it's affected a sizable amount of the community? Mm-hmm. And you kind of think car manufacturers aren't really set up for that. No. They, you know, a, a recall is, they happen, but they are, you know, major undertakings that's sort of a last resort if they absolutely absolutely that that's the uh, you know that's almost the nuclear option it is or there's a regulator sort of breathing down your neck sufficiently heavy heavily that you kind of don't have any choice yeah um whereas you know any computer now any sort of phone or tablet or or, or desktop it's you know there are patches coming out continually um but the the other problem that the, i think the car industry really has is the legacy of an architecture that is designed and then intended to be used for 10 or 15 years so yeah. if you look at um look at uh, apple carplay um, again, I'm going to keep referring to Apple, not because I, you know, I know Google and Android have their equivalents, but it's just sort of what I know best. Um, okay. I think Apple CarPlay, I think, was announced in 2000, uh, 2013. I think it was first mooted, if not a little bit before. And we're only now getting to the point where a lot of the mainstream manufacturers are introducing it. So, you know... Yeah. The latest round of the KN and the the nine nine one um, nine eleven, the you know <laughs> personal interest the M three's now got it, um, <laughs> but for you know for like two years there were 
40 cars globally that that supported it um yeah and and it was such a big hoo-ha yeah if a particular model came out with it you know it had its own bit on a plinth to say look <laughs> yeah. this is such a special car it has you know android or or apple yeah look at it, it's marvelous look at this the future and, and you know and that's how it was but now we've got um more mainstream manufacturers rather than the premium end or the sports car mm. and things they've got it mm. you know because uh it's seen as expected um it, to, to quite a large degree that people expect to see this sort of mm. stuff in there um and let's be honest if you want someone to design your user interface, I'd rather it was Apple <laughs> than a car manufacturer because their record isn't the best. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, and, and this is actually what's what's kind of interesting is that the those sorts of systems are they're kind of mirrored in um, what's happened to smart TVs because I. I've got a smart TV and I never use the smart features because I've got an Apple TV or a Chromecast or something else plugged into it. Mm. So the TV manufacturer becomes a producer of essentially a commodity panel, which you then attach all the bells and whistles to. So it then doesn't matter if you buy a Sony or a Panasonic or an LG or, or a Samsung, because all you want is a thing that displays pictures. And I, and I would be willing to bet that there is a certain concern within car manufacturers that they don't want to become that blank panel that you then connect your phone or something to. You know, how no, do you? That you you can see that now, can't you? you they mm. are they are desperate to control that ecosystem mm. because, well, I, I see. So I mean, I have a I. I I know I do look out for it, and <laughs> this will be confirmation bias on my part as well. But I see so many uh, messages and um, reports and white papers and conferences on how to make money being a connected car, mm. how to do this. And every single one of them is you control it and you can then personalize, i.e., give targeted ads. Mm. And it's that's that is. Uh, plan A as far as connected cars and making money is is mm. we will give you you know our trusted partners in inverted commas you mean the people who've paid <laughs> to be in, in your screen to have an app or to have access to the data and stuff yeah. like this and if people go no actually I'm only going to use Android uh, or Apple mm. you're not going to see any of that because you know if 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 all I want is just a mirror of my phone mm. you don't have access to my phone because all I need is just a bigger screen of my phone. And they are working against that. I mean, you've got the Ford, um, oh, what do they call it, the thing E3. It's their app ecosystem, but they've now got other manufacturers coming on board. They, uh, Toyota have partnered up with them as well. Mm. Um, I think that was announced at CES that's just gone ah. as we record this. Uh, I think they an- announced a closer tie-in. I know they were working together, but they've announced a closer tie-in and then there's other manufacturers. So basically there is a third option. Mm. So we've got Apple, Android, and this Ford. I, I can't remember the system's name. <laughs> Sorry. Everyone. It's something three. Um, and-, and that's the third option 
where they have more control and they can build their apps and stuff uh, like that because they're trying to become, you know, mobility yeah. people. But, um, and, and I think that can be a really can be a really tricky environment because one of the things I, I really like about Apple is that they say, we don't want to see your data. We don't care about your data. We don't want to, to monetize your data. Um, and there's all sorts of examples of this. And obviously with, with, with CarPlay, go back to what you say about manufacturers, there's always the risk that the people producing the apps are the ones who end up monetizing it rather than the, the manufacturer. But I think mm-hmm. that there is, there's definitely a, a point at which the, the functions, so things like CarPlay or USB playback or SD ports, or whatever, they, trickle into the standard OE manufacturer product. And you've kind of got a situation, which I'm sure you remember, because I think you're, you're similar vintage to me, that way back when, before smartphones, you used to go to the car phone warehouse and buy your um, you know, Nokia 5110 on a, on a cell net plan. Mm. The, there was always that, that, that layer that the network would add on to the phone Oh, to yeah. try and make you buy their games and their ringtones and what have you. And Nokia, you know, you'd sort of see on the internet in the geekier corners that, you know, there's a new version of firmware available for, for whatever it may have been. The only way that you could get it was once the networks had got it and they'd validated it and they'd added their layer of stuff on the top and then they might push it out to you or you might have to send it into them as a service call and all this sort of thing. And a lot of car manufacturers, and I say a lot because... I mean, you know, Tesla are, are the great exception here, I think, um, rely on OE partners to buy a lot of this sort of stuff in for. Um, mm. And where you have an issue or where you have new functionality, whereas with Apple, you've got that thing of like, ah, oh, you know, new version of iOS comes out or a new version of Android comes out and you can download it and you can install it on this day. We're then into this thing of, Okay, so you know, Acme um, integration company have released a new version of firmware that then goes to the car manufacturer. They then test it. They then put it through their filter. They then send it to the dealer. The dealer will then install it for you when you next come in for a service. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like you're losing the immediacy that people now expect of a a connected device. Well, particularly if it's a security update. Oh, God, yes. I mean, that's you're just talking just a general mm. update of, you know, okay, we're going to put a few more fonts on and mm. here's a new game or, you know, something like that. But if it's a security one, you need that now, really. Yes. <laughs> for them to have got to that point, they've noticed a major problem or it's been brought to their attention. So they've worked very quickly and very hard to get it out. Mm. And therefore, that means you are vulnerable. Yeah, and you know this is. Just, you know, I mean, we're just talking general IT as a as a thing here now. Oh yeah, that you know, if there's a security update, you do that. You you upload the security update. You make sure you're backed up and all that sort of stuff. But you please upload <laughs> security updates as soon as possible, because a lot of money has been spent and a lot of people have rushed around to get this to the point where it's in front of you to make mm. you do this. Because they want you to be safe. Yes. It goes back to the whole nobody wants to, nobody's deliberately producing a duff product here. (laughs) 
They may be cutting corners in mm. some Internet of Things companies. VTech talking about you there. Um, <laughs> or any of the I, Mirai. I have kids. Yeah. They, they do not own any VTech stuff now. Oh, good. <laughs> There's no chance. <laughs> But I just, sorry, can I just take sure. back, you know, something you were saying a, a bit earlier. Um, when you were talking about how um, the two researchers, mm. uh, they they um, sh- exploited some weaknesses in two cars. Now, they produced, they were doing it on the side, uh, you know, they were, they were, informing people in a, uh, in a positive way. This, they hadn't maliciously hacked in to get an advantage or something. Yes. Now, there are some manufacturers who have um, got policies to deal with researchers um, uh, and how they will interact with them. Some manufacturers in America have got more recent ones than others. I mean, if I understand correctly, if I remember correctly, Tesla seems to have a a good or a decent uh, reward scheme um, because that's one of the tactics that uh, a company can mm. use to encourage researchers to inform them of problems. Um, but there's other manufacturers uh, that don't do bug bounties that ask research or demand researchers will sign an NDA and things like that. How do you think is the best way from a transparency and a confidence building manner for a company to react or to interact with researchers so i think the i think the, the bug bounty type program um which you mentioned i think it's a great way so there are who's doing it now so tesla's one um gm who i'll come back to in a second do one uh, i think fiat chrysler do as well now because they're suddenly very aware of this sort of issue. Um, so what a, bu- <laughs> what a bug bounty program is, you can basically go out to the security community and say, if you find a flaw in our product or our service or our website or whatever it may be, tell us. And if we can validate it and we can um, we can fix it, we will then reward you. We'll give you an amount of money based on the severity of the bug. So you might get, um, for example, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, um, there, you, know, you might have a website that can accept a malformed um, email address that could potentially corrupt the site. Um, and somebody will look at that and go, yeah, I see what you've done. I see your work. We can reproduce it. We will therefore give you $1,000. And by the way, we fixed it. Um, and it's it's becoming an increasingly common thing to do within the security community, particularly now that there are forums and there are companies who will who will run these. So there's Bug Track, there's Hacker One, where not only do you submit them, but other people can then view the kind of the historical bugs once they've been fixed and and published in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good way within the security community to sort of go, look, we're taking this seriously. We're going to be open about what we do. And we want you to interact ethically with us. Um, mm. I know when I know GM, there was talk when they first started getting into this where it was really that thing of, um, 
you know, you will sign an NDA. You will, um, we will fix it on our timescales. We won't disclose what it is once it's fixed. If you talk to anybody else about this, we reserve the right to sue you. Um, I'm paraphrasing massively and hopefully getting it legally And the bounty was zero dollars. Uh, when yes. it first came out, yes. it was zero dollars. I don't know if that, I presume that's changed now. I, I presume somebody's had a word and said, "Yes, really, come yeah. on." Well, because <laughs> they made this big thing about, "Oh, we got a bug bounty," and then somebody a couple of days later read the the small print and went, uh, "Excuse me, is, is there is this a misprint?" <laughs> you, you've got a disclosure program. I mean, it, and, and it's one of the challenges actually with technology is around security disclosure because. While you have vulnerable products out there in the wild, you you kind of you don't want to f- the researcher because you don't want them going public, particularly um, if it's easily exploitable or exploitable on mass, like the uh, the Mirai uh, botnet issue uh, recently. That was the one that um, load of hacked over... uh, webcam uh, yes. security cameras and what have you, because they were easily discoverable <laughs> online. And they had fixed um, admin passwords, which you couldn't change. And because it was easily automatable, somebody automated it and Mm. hilarity ensued. Um, I say hilarity, it wasn't at all hilarious. Um, (laughs) For that one person in that one room. (laughs) Yes, very much so. Um, But I think there's... So now I think people are a lot more aware within the security side of things of saying, okay, I have made reasonable efforts to inform you of this and you have made little or no effort to fix it or acknowledge it or or engage, therefore I'm going public. Um, And this isn't by any means a car car issue, you know. It's it's a no. I was going to say that that seems to be a, a very fine balance. Mm. Um, that has to be uh, has to be trod by both sides, really. It, it, I mean, I think you uh, it'd be it'd be very easy for a misunderstanding to cause a, a problem there. Oh yeah, through poor communication. Yeah, and um, and and, and, if you, and also you you do see you do see people go to uh, go to manufacturers or, or, or companies and sort of say we've we've got this thing, and they're like, yeah, we don't care. And then they go to the news and the news go, oh, that's really interesting and feature it. And suddenly the, the manufacturer's back on the phone going, about that thing you spoke to us about. Mm. And he, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of, particularly when it comes to security, I think a lot of people kind of go, we don't want to talk about it. We we shouldn't talk about it. It's, you know, it's um, it, it's a corporate secret. It's, it's uh, you know, it's security through um, obfuscation. Obfuscation, is that the right word? You know, it's like we don't talk about it, and therefore you can't hack it. And you mm. can, and there's people on the other side going, you do realise, you know, we can just put inputs in and see what comes out, and realise how this is working. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the trust aspect, I mean, even beyond just disclo- vulnerability disclosure, the when you start talking about, I mean, VW have just bought a company that do in-car payments, which is a kind of interesting. I wonder what the use case is there. Um, but as soon as you get into storing, well, they were they were talking about parking, fuel. Yep. Um, 
was that? Oh, I can't remember. There was something drive else. Drive-throughs. Well, it <laughs> yeah, it's it, you know, it's it's the first step on getting people comfortable of just pressing a button and saying yes, pay this. It it can tell by GPS we're here. Pay the thing I'm going to do. Let's go. Type. Yeah, which you can do via an app on your phone. Well, I mean, this is one of the major problems I have with the whole connectivity side of things that I've yet to see anything a manufacturer's put out there mm. as making me go brilliant use case. That's it. You know, that's, that's mm. the thing that makes me go, yes, that's, it needs to be in the car because at the minute I've got a phone that does it all <laughs> and I don't have to pay for a second connection mm. and things like that, that some manufacturers aren't doing, but some manufacturers are doing. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not having to do it twice. There's no mm. there's no duplication. There's no, um, you know, I'm not doubling up on things here. I, I I'm I, connecting my phone to a car to play something is nice. Yeah. Connecting my phone to a car so that I can make phone calls if I needed to is okay. Uh, I don't. I'm. I'm one of those that doesn't really agree with using your phone <laughs> whilst driving at all because mm. there's there is lots of research and more is coming out all the time showing even on hands free. Yeah. Even with no with uh, voice activated uh, answering, uh, you are still distracted to a um, such a degree that it is like you are X times over the limit with alcohol and things like that. You, mm. are, you are just impaired. You are cognitively impaired. Therefore, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, this was brought home to me because I worked for a company that banned you being called or you calling while you were driving on their business. Interesting. Which was amazing because they said, their, their ethos was, we, we work in this industry. You're not an emergency services person. Mm. It can wait. It can wait. Whatever it is, <laughs> it can wait till you pull over. <laughs> yeah. We are not that important. And that's what, you know, everybody, we all feel we're very important. And this of message course. must be very important. So that's part of what the, the problem is. But I've, I've, I've yet to see anything that makes me go, oh, that has to be in the car. It wouldn't work on the phone. Have you? Or I don't already have it. <laughs> have, you, have you seen that? I think it might have been at CES that Volvo have now integrated the Skype productivity suite yes, into there. Yes. What the? Oh. oh. Anyway. And here's the thing: it can be it, it's active when you're driving. Yeah, that's. I can weird. understand it if it will only activate if you if the gear lever is in park, the handbrake is engaged, and you are not moving. I totally mm. understand using um, that sort of hands-free, <clears throat> excuse me, facility in the car. You know, many people have to drive around for work purposes. Totally understand that, I, and and that would be uh, very useful. But whilst it's on the move, <laughs> yes. I, I re- it's bad enough talking one to one. I don't need a conference call because a conference call <laughs> implies quite a lot of thinking and mm. participation. To me, <laughs> maybe I'm not quite getting all the use cases. <laughs> so, I, I, I must admit, I had um, kind of an interesting experience coming back from the uh, from the race of remembrance actually um, over in Anglesey. I want to ask you about that in a bit, by the way. Oh, awesome. It was a fantastic event. Um, and what was what was really interesting was it was the afternoon of the 
Brazilian Grand Prix, the one where it rained and um, nobody won the championship. And I thought, ah, five live. I'll put it on, you know, 909 or 693. Awesome. Um, and it, the AM reception was awful. It's, you were in the, the far end of North Wales. But the, the, I think there's a, an antenna sometimes <laughs> if the wind is in the right direction. It was, but, <laughs> oh, it was just awful. Got um, the BBC iPlayer app on my phone, hooked the phone into the into the stereo, and mm. apart from maybe over the whole journey, over the whole course of the race, and you know it was red flagged and even longer than usual. I think I had maybe maybe 90 seconds of no signal blackout um, over the whole trip. And it was one of those things where you kind of go, yes, I mean, it's all been driven by my phone, but you thought, actually, the internet option has provided something far, far better than the, uh, you know, the, the standard option and that comes with the car. For, for, well, for the yeah. sake of argument. <laughs> um, but I, I do think one thing with connected cars is that you you it's easy to look at it and go, oh, you can, you know, you can play music, you can get um, maps, you can get uh, Waze or, or, or whatever it might be. I always approach these things and say, well, follow the money because if you're connecting something to the internet, at the moment there is a cost. If you've got a Kindle, that cost is borne by Amazon. Yeah. And as a result of that, you can buy books while you're anywhere in the world and you can, or pretty much anywhere in the world, and you can download them instantly onto your Kindle. And that drives book sales for Amazon. And I, 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 Lord knows what the economics behind it might be. I'd be kind of fascinated to find out. So if you apply that to a car, you say, okay, what is either going to make the manufacturer more money at point of sale? Because you know, you and I have both seen car options lists where you go, really? That much for a painted key cover? Um, <laughs> and also, if you look at a number of cars now that are coming out with connected or online services of some sort, they say um, your first three years or your first five years is included, and then it's X much per year. Yes. Because the people who are selling cars to people who buy new cars, they're not trying to produce cars for people who are buying 10-year-old cars when they're, um, well, like mine, where the, the tape deck... Oh, hi, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my car's hilarious. It's got a tape deck, and it's got an analogue TV tuner and no signal to pick up. Um, <laughs> but the... So so they're selling things to people who buy cars, and they're including that first three or five years, or whatever it might be, service. And on the interface, you get things like... You know, like you say, you get radio, you get podcasts, you get um, potentially things like traffic updates. You know, you could get really, really rich, detailed traffic information over the air very quickly, and the satnav can can, can integrate that and, and and deal with it. But like you say, a lot of this your phone can do one way or another. So you go, okay, well, what about making the car cheaper to make? So people are going to be expecting natural voice recognition. And if you've got an iPhone, if you do the the Siri bit, that's all offloaded to the cloud, processed, and then fed back. Um, you could remove all of the cost of building um, sat-nav into cars. 
by simply having a GPS receiver and a Google Maps equivalent system, which never needs to be updated. You don't, you know, you don't have dealers selling DVDs for 300 quid. Um, <laughs> yeah. And which works for as long as the Google API or whatever stands up, but that's a whole different obsolescence <laughs> issue. Um, but then you sort of say, well, you've now got a channel where you can do security updates or functional updates. You can you can push advertising, which would be a revenue generator for the car manufacturers, however you might feel about that. And I think you and I both have the same feeling about that. Well, I, just on that, on that, mm. and this isn't about the whole anti-adverts mm. um, because, uh, you know, my feelings have been made clear um you know i, I they say the, the the immediate reaction or immediate words that are put out are oh we can make a personalized service for you rather than well i don't want any service at all <laughs> but are they actually i mean okay the manufacturer will make money because they'll say oh look you we're giving you data that is specific enough to target in a specific way now mm. that's a whole different problem and is, is is a privacy issue which I have many issues with. Yep. Uh, what level of information they they are prepared to give out, and how are we going to be made aware, in simple terms, as a consumer, as a buyer of a product, how much they are telling someone else who we have no control over, yep. will get us basically. Mm. Um. But forgetting that for a moment, it's a big <laughs> if and a big forget. Yeah. Um, but will the advertisers actually make any money off the back of this? Really? It, because it, you know, it's not like it's a click through. I mean, do you ever click any ads on Gmail or, you know, AdWords or stuff like that? I, I do sometimes if it's, if it's relevant, if, it, if it's the thing that I'm looking for. I've um, never clicked one of those. I'm now blind to them. But bearing in mind, if you've got so at the moment, the, the model that like AdWords uses is you buy the leads. So you know, I search for hamburger. Every time somebody clicks on my link, I pay two dollars or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, you can. You, yeah, there, there's the click through. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I can see that. In advertising terms, you have that thing of right. We spent this, and it generated that. Of course, if you're in a car, hopefully you can't click through and buy things. You know, you you can't be driving along and it's only go. Do you fancy a new stepladder? Click here and we'll send one to your house. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's it's going to be more along the lines of, oh, you've been driving for an hour. There's a Starbucks. Exactly. Here, isn't there? Exactly. So. Or have you ever considered visiting the lovely town of Bath? Um, yeah. Because I've noticed on some uh, sat navs, only particular. Um, Supermarkets will come up. Ah, I've noticed that already. Interesting. That you know, only only a particular brand of uh, supermarket will come up, uh, <laughs> uh, and you'll see their logo on the thing as you're just as you're yeah. driving along. Ah, and it, oh look, it's near the route. Uh, <laughs> and, they've probably got a petrol station. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> do we think that reduced the sticker price of the car to the uh, customer in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, if only. Um, no, no, no. Sorry, can we have extra month <laughs> connecting you? <laughs> yeah. Now I know, and, and again, this is uh, sometimes because of Twitter and 140 characters. Mm. I can't 
um, make this clear yep. all the time. But in Europe, manufacturers are being forced to connect their cars because of emergency calls yep. and things like that. So manufacturers are looking at ways to uh, lessen the blow of an extra complication, an extra cost, and they are telling us this is what you all want. Mm. I, no, I, I I do understand that they. Uh, this is sort of as a result of something. Yeah. So uh, and maybe not everybody's aware, but I I can't remember if it's this year or next year. All new cars must be able to be connected to. Uh, for if there's an accident, the car will call, or signal that there has <laughs> been an accident and and this is the location. Yeah. And that's what must happen with new cars. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, you know, manufacturers have gone, well, we're putting all this at tech in. We're putting all this connectivity in. There's got to be a way we can make some money out of this. And, yes, they're a business. They have to make money. You know, mm. we want them to make money because I would like more cars and I would like more exciting and interesting cars, <laughs> please. Please keep doing that. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm not being too churlish. It's just sometimes different departments mm. are driving this. As it were, yeah. So, um, but that, that's my problem, really, in it all. See, the, the the interesting angle I think is that once you've got a connection, whoever's paid for it. So, yeah, I, in an ideal world, you know, the consumer pays for it, and and the manufacturer gets to sort of piggyback onto the back of it. But with something like the i three or the i eight, um, in particular. There's always this talk of of the um, you know the virtual concierge that sort of goes ah your car has developed a problem you know would you like me to book yeah. it in for a service? There is another le- level beyond that where, assuming that the manufacturer is trustworthy, and I'll I'd, I'd say BMW only because I'm thinking of the i3 and the i8 with this specifically, but to be able to collect usage information on a car be able to do sort of do that field research in a suitably anonymized way you could say for an i3 every time every time it it finishes a journey it reports the location with a 10 mile fuzz on it um battery charge at start battery charge at the end and distance covered and you get into this sort of big data thing where suddenly a manufacturer like BMW can say, ah, in central London, the average journey is this, and they're recharged this frequently. And then, you know, Norway, they're done like this. And in the south of France, they're treated like this. Um, and people say, you know, oh, I wouldn't buy an electric car until it's got 300 miles of range. Well, according to this, the average person only recharges it every 100 miles or 120 miles or um, yeah. every three days. And you can start building in more stuff as well, whether you action it to the customer or not, where you say, we're seeing in hot countries, this component is reaching a critical temperature. Um, Or, you know, under this circumstance, the battery temperature is going really, really high. We need to be aware of this so that we can then feed that into the next cycle of the product. And... Or, or even, you know, preemptively sort of do um, service bulletins and sort of say, you know, when these cars next come in for service, please upgrade this relay to that uh, that strength or, or, or whatever the measure is of a relay. I suddenly realized I got halfway through that and didn't know how relays are measured. Um, 
but you know you can you can then use it not as a um not as a way of of necessarily monetizing it but of sort of doing field research on a huge yeah, it's not scale beta testing but it is it is live um constant testing it's 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 the same as if on your computer you say uh, you tick the button uh, or the check box that says Yes, um, I will send crash data. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, because I want this to not crash in the future, please. Yes. I acknowledge it's probably going to happen a couple of times. But if you could, if through my help, you can make that not happen, that would mm. be awesome. And it's that sort of information. It's, yeah, and and that's where I'm at such a quandary with a lot of this stuff, is that I, I, I don my tinfoil hat <laughs> for many, many things. Mm. And some of the stuff I see being put out there um, and... Uh, being offered to consumers and people who don't don't think about these things mm. and don't really care because we've got used to just passing over ourselves, mm. passing our you know us onto whoever because we're going to get a service whether it's a, a particular website or we get free email or whatever it is. Mm. But then on the other hand, I go, but uh, uh, that scenario you've just explained. But if you used it for that, that's awesome. Because you know the 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 i three one point one will be that much better, yeah. You know, noticeably better because you'll have you'll have had the ability to put you know millions of miles of testing, not just your you know hundred people that have driven round and round and round for a year <laughs> or two. You know, this is all your buyers, yeah, giving you real world data that is actually. Um, more useful now for you because you're seeing the the daft things people will do or mm. the realistic things people will do, uh, and that's that's yeah. I mean, if they if that was the focus, that'd be awesome. Unfortunately, shareholders are involved and their dividends and things like that. So see, but I I would argue that wherever you've got security, the focus is always on trust. So mm. you've got. You know, you go to um, on any level. It's how can you protect the data? How can you ensure that you're talking to the right people? How can you ensure that nobody can see this, that, or the other? And a big part of that is, do you trust the people that are providing the service? Now, again, going back to the Apple thing, because I I know Apple better than others. I was reading about um, the new MacBook. Pro, at least, probably some of the other ones, where they have security subsystems built into into the laptop, and it you know it does things like um, touch ID, so people can't read your um, thumbprint data, things like that. One of the things that it includes is the little light next to the webcam is controlled by the security system on the laptop, because if somebody installs malware and they want to spy on you. They want to be able to be able to not have that light come on, and if it's handled by security rather than just by the operating system, it becomes that much harder to to compromise. Now, where you've got so when we were, well, I was saying way back when about car architecture, if you try and bolt security on after the fact, it's really really difficult. If you can embed a a hardened um, security system in the middle of absolutely everything, you then build every function um, on top of that security layer. So 
again, with the iPhone, you know, you go to an app. The app wants to view your photos. The app has to go to the operating system. The operating system has to prompt you in a consistent fashion to then allow that access. So you've you've got this system that will need to be built into the cars, even at a design stage, let alone um, at production, and that can then be that platform sort of going forward. But at the same time, you need to be presenting yourself as an open, trustworthy company and saying to people, if you want to use our service, this is what we will do. This is what we won't do. This is what we care about. This is what we don't care about. And I think it's, again, you know, you look at the Apple keynote speeches and they say repeatedly, we don't back this up. We don't want to see it. We can't see it. We have no reason to see it. Um, and I think that for a manufacturer to take that approach, and I, I kind of keep discounting Tesla, which is really, really unfair because they've come at this much, much more from that technology angle. And in fact, even to the point of going out to security conferences and you know hiring staff kind of off the floor to come and work with them mm. on the security side. Um, but I think it'd be a really strong statement for, you know, a big car manufacturer to sort of say, okay, forget the legalese, you know, do you want to opt into our our ad service? Here's what's in it for you. And I think as soon as you do that, you've got to have a really, really strong proposition where you are not only presenting your, you know, an option to the customer, but you're saying you've got to be able to trust us. And if yeah. if you have the choice of buying a car from, you know, super premium, happy motor company, <laughs> these are sounding um, odd, oddly far eastern, but, you know, either a <laughs> trusted manufacturer that has good policies or a manufacturer that is very, very cheap, promises all of these things, doesn't have these policies and, and this sort of message around it as a you know as a customer there will be some people who will always be drawn to the cheapest option because yeah because that's economics and that's how these things work but there will be other people that say well if i spend a bit more i'm not going to be targeted for advertising i know what's going to happen with this um and as the sort of the generation now who are 15 16 17 you know, as they become 22, 25, 30, they're going to be so much more savvy about these things. And it will be kind of, it won't even be an engineering problem. It'll be a a marketing issue. It'll be a corporate culture issue. And then we'll start seeing some quite interesting things that people like you and I can sort of go, okay, I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to trust you. And because of the world that we now live in and the reporting that goes on, if anything happens, we're all going to know about it. Mm. And yeah. it's it will be a very, very interesting time over the next 10 years, I think, as platforms get refreshed, technology gets refreshed. This stuff is already being built into cars. I know that there are security companies you know, involved with car manufacturers. I know that car manufacturers are, you know, working on this at, at 
such a level far beyond what they do currently. And mm. there's a real market for um, – I mean, there's no regulation around this stuff. There's no, there needs to be like a, a factum or a Euro NCAP equivalent for sort of computer security, for want of. Yeah. And I think being able to sort of hang your hat on, here are, you know, ethically good policies. Here's our five star rating from, you know, Car Cyber Witch magazine or whatever it might be. Yeah. You can trust. They us. communicated in a sim- using simple language. Yeah, they did that. They did, you know, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. And and, uh, and and we we pointed our band of uh, crack techies at our at their car, and we couldn't find anything obvious. Yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I think um, you know. Well, thank you so much for um, talking about the whole connected and security side of things there. Um but I I did want to bring you on for you as well. Not not just not just all the security side of things which uh frankly I could talk uh for hours and hours <laughs> and hours about um you know interchanging to bigger tinfoil hats as I go along. Um but I'd like to go back uh and hear some of your car history. So when? How old were you when you passed your test? I was eighteen, and I okay. I passed on my second go. I even failed my theory test first time. Did you drive something before, after passing, before you had your first car, or was your first car what you drove after? Uh, I drove my dad's one point six litre Cavalier. Um, mm-hmm. I. The engine then developed a suspicious fault that I was initially blamed for, um, and it was replaced with a 1.8-litre Cavalier. Uh, which, And being the precocious child that I was at 19, um, I complained that the 1.8 had power steering, which didn't offer the same feel as the uh, manual steering in the 1.6. <laughs> um, oh, God. You're just ruining it with this technology. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that then got replaced with a 1.6-litre Skoda Octavia. Um, mm-hmm. and then a bit further down the line, I, my, my first car was, um, a 1.6 litre Ford Focus, which was lovely. Mark um, one? The Mark, uh, is the Mark one facelift. Oh, okay. Um, which had, which actually had the radio stolen out of it. And when the dealer wanted 300 quid for a new one, I got a, uh, iPod connecting uh, Alpine in, instead, and yeah, installed that, and lived out my uh, my my boy racer uh, car stereo days. Um, and then, as I've, I've been phenomenally lucky to be able to drive other people's very nice cars, um, one of which was the M3 that I ended up buying. Um, so the M my my BMW M3 is it's only the second car that I've ever owned. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I, it's the E46 M3 and it's phenomenal. I love it to bits. Well, I've, I've seen, uh, I've said, like I say, I've seen the talk, um, from SteelCon mm. and I've, I've seen a few tweets. And stuff, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask with my tongue in my cheek saying, is by any chance, do you like that? Car? <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's fantastic because it's, it is of that age where, you can swap out the stereo. You can plug computers in, and you can download. I, I, I enabled the M track mode, which was originally um, 
some that came along on the CSL and the CS. And BMW, in their infinite wisdom, rather than putting a bespoke ECU or rather um, stability control management unit just in those cars, they actually started fitting them to every car. Um, and I found a guide online where you could basically go in and somebody described it, said, oh, you've had it chipped. I was kind of like, no, I just downloaded a text config file and changed a few numbers and re-uploaded it. And it turned on uh, and didn't brick the unit. And yeah, it's... it's well, uh, in Lovely. today's world, you could potentially go to jail for that. Well, I mean, obviously, I, I, I haven't done any of this, and it's all purely hypothetical. <laughs> but if John Deere get their way, <laughs> yes, you'll never be able to uh, put the sports suspension on your tractor ever again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how long have you had the uh, had the BM? Oh, about five years now. Um, and, and you're itching to get rid now? No, 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 no. Um, so is, is that your only car or do you have a company car? Or? No, no, that's my, that's, that's, that's my that's only car and a, and, and a couple of bicycles to, to go with it. And yeah, it, it's, it's amazingly practical. I've moved house in it. I've gone camping in it. I've gone to the tip in it. It's, yeah, it's phenomenally versatile. Excellent. Excellent. I love when you talk to someone who has got a car that that meets their needs mm. pretty much, you know, 99% of the time. There's, there's, there isn't, I don't believe there is the car that will do everything, but I believe there's cars that will do virtually everything. Mm. And, and, um, and, and that's excellent to hear, that is. And the thing I love about the M3 as well is that it's it's of an age where it or it's flawed in some way. So when it's cold, like the gearbox is stiff between first and second. And when you're manoeuvring the diff chunters and graunches and all sorts, but it's kind of, it's, it's, I've once described it as like the SR 71 blackbird. It's that thing of the, when the aircraft is on its, is on, is in the hangar, it leaks fuel so that when it's going at full chat and all the metal expands, it's all kind of as it should be. And, yes. and it's kind of the same with the M3 that you kind of, you, you get in it and you, you drive it when it's cold and it, it's grumpy. And then once it's warmed up in the engine, you know, you can rev the engine out and, you know, it, it, it's, it then has a sense of purpose and a sense of feel that kind of this is the bit that it was designed to do and you put up with the other stuff so that you get to this bit. Although I, I, I did put a, in one of my drive court articles, I drove the i3 and then got into the M3 afterwards. And the i3 is so good and so intuitive. It makes the M3 feel like a sort of Victorian motion engine where you sort of, you know, the idea of having a clutch and a lever that you throw and all this, it just, you know, it, it feels quite antiquated in some ways compared to yes. modern cars but it, I, I've spoken yeah. to a few people who've who stepped from an electric in back into a combustion engine uh, and you know uh, and, and I felt this myself uh, I, I've gone oh this it doesn't feel right <laughs> the electric felt right yes and it, it and I was really surprised at how quickly I adapted to the the 
almost sophistication, but the 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 lack of impact on your driving mm. by having an electric motor powering it. There there is it removes so much uh, input into you that you didn't realise you were having to deal with. Mm. At a subconscious level, and then when you get back in a in a combustion engine, you just go, "God, this is not easy," <laughs> and, and, you know. And I'm, I'm I'm having to brake when I get to a corner rather than it regenerate itself and things like that. You know, it's amazing. The gear lever suddenly feels like one of those levers that they have in a signal box on a railway to change the points. Yes, you know, it's it's all very, uh, I am definitely making this happen. (laughs) The amazing thing is, I I thought, particularly with the i3, although I've had a a quick drive in a Tesla Model S that was similar. The first time that I used an iPad or an iPhone and you'd gone from having like a stylus and a resistive touchscreen to just having, you know, having completely intuitive, low uh, latency controls that suddenly, you know, scrolling had inertia and pinch and zoom. Mm. And you kind of go, there's, there's no learning curve. You kind of go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's just sort of what it is. And yeah. you kind of go, oh, I, le- good electric cars are getting to that sort of similar um, state now where you just sort of get in them and you're like, oh, this all makes sense. <laughs> yes, I want to do this. So, oh, it's just here where my hand is now. Yeah, no, and that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so you were you uh, on the side? You're writing. You mentioned before that you arrive uh, that you write uh, and do stuff for uh, it's Drive Cult, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. So, what's the to anyone who doesn't know what Drive Cult is? What what is the site about? Um, so, Drive Cult was really a chance for a few motoring enthusiasts to be able to kind of post what they wanted. On their own terms, focusing on 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 whatever niche they they wanted to focus on. So, you know, Matt's got um, he knows phenomenal amounts about sort of um, classic Ferraris, and he has a a Daytona that he posts about. And you know, we've we've sort of covered news stories, we've done product launches, we've uh, done stuff from the um, SMMT test days. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just sort of giving people a, a, a different um, different view into into things, rather than trying to sort of copy a, a magazine format. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that sounds. Um, I mean, I have seen the, the odd things um, that have crossed my path and things, and, and I've always uh, enjoyed what I have read. Um, that it, it it comes from a very genuine place. Mm. It's. There's no pretense to be something else. It is very much well. Here's 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 this thing, and I'm writing about this thing, and it interests me because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I will now tell you about it. And I and I enjoy that because there's you know you can put turn on Google anytime you like to find. Can I have the latest rumor in the car, <laughs> please? You know, and and that's just a race to the bottom. Yeah. And there are bigger beasts out there that anyone doing something on the side can't compete with. Mm. Um, I mean, there's just no, there's no way that you can, and um, I don't think that's the way to go because there's, you know, that that market is cornered off. Very People much so. giving their own opinions um, and explaining these opinions in a mature and adult way 
that's not i don't think that is cornered off yet no and uh, and, and and that's a very interesting part of the internet and that, and that can be in all the 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 interest you know whether it's people who um who like doing racing or it's people who are just talking about classic cars or it's people who's talking about uh, new products or it's people who's talking about technology you know whatever but there's there's i think there's always going to be room for people to discuss and have a conversation about it and that's what i always when i've when i've read the articles that you guys have put out that's what i've always felt it was it was it was a discussion mm. and, and 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 it's passion that's the thing it's it's yeah having somewhere where i can gush nerdly about why rolls royce is fantastic <laughs> for no other reason than that's what i think and there's there's a space i can do it in and i think that's you know it, it's it's a real privilege to have uh, to have access to something like that Mm. No, that's excellent. Right, um, I want to move on to the quickfire question. Go for it. I think we're we're rounding up here. Okay. And I, I'm <laughs> conscious that at some point you'd like to go to sleep tonight. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to start with the one I always start with. And but before I go any further, and this this is sort of this is more becoming a mantra to myself. <laughs> is the idea is that I will ask you the question. Yeah. You will answer in the way that you feel is appropriate. I will then move on to the next question. And not try to go, oh, but, and then <laughs> subsequent questions. So, Fair so enough. here we go. Let's, let's start with the, uh, the typical first one, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Uh, what currently excites me? Um, special edition cars. Are there special edition cars now? Sorry, I said I wasn't going to ask a question. I've already things. So uh, nine. There's like things like the 911R. There's the okay. The, yeah. Every Zonda variant that's ever come out. So you're not saying the uh, 1990s Micra Splash or something like that. Oh well, I mean, you know, <laughs> that and and then the yeah the Peugeot 106 uh, Hawaii and all that. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. All, all the the weird and the wonderful and the. The, the niche and the the Jaguar X the Jaguar XKRS GT where you start getting into part numbers and it's got the suspension <laughs> off this and and I love <laughs> stuff like that. Okay, no, that's pretty cool. Um, what currently worries you about the motoring world? Uh, the insurance industry because I I the the whole black box telematics thing. It's just. I don't know where that leads, and that worries me. I don't trust that. No. At all. Uh, yes, but I, I'm okay. I'm with you on that one. Um, that, that wasn't the answer I was expecting, to be honest, but no, I like that. I like that. It's the first time we've had that. Uh, what's been... Well, I think I may know the answer. This uh, what's been your favourite car to drive, and why is that? Um... I would say... Oh, there's so many... Oh, it's actually. Uh, no, I'll tell you what, my favourite car to drive. I did a uh, single seater experience at Silverstone, and the whatever the single seaters are that they use there was such a fantastically raw and tactile experience. I'd love to go back and do that again and drive more racing cars and stuff like that because it's so different. Okay. Okay, that's that's interesting. That. Yeah. Uh, what's been your least favourite car to drive, and why was that? Uh, 
See, my first thought was some of the higher cars I've had on holiday, but I think sometimes having low-power, honest cars can be actually quite fun. Um, are there really many bad cars? Probably... It doesn't have to be bad. It's just your least favourite. My least favourite. Um, my When I was growing up, my friend had a series of minis that old classic minis that he modified in less than spectacular ways and I never fitted in them <laughs> and they were bouncy and yeah it would be one of those I think mm-hmm. okay then um, <clears throat> what would be the car that you'd like to own next uh, it would be the new well unless I could get a McLaren F1 um, from this magic genie, it would be um, the new M3 competition pack. Okay, sticking with the brand. Absolutely, you're you're on brand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your favourite road to drive on? It would have to be, assuming that it counts as a de-restricted toll road, it would have to be the Nurburgring Nordschleife. Okay. Failing that, there's a few around Leicestershire that I have many happy memories on. Okay. <laughs> uh, what has been the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? I, I haven't experienced the uh, Espresso Maker in the Fiat 500L. Um, so I would probably say... Um, Keyless en- entry, generally. I, I don't get on with keyless entry. Uh, okay, breaking my mantra. Well, why don't you get on with it? Just out of interest. Because I'm one of those hypochondriacs that likes to check that the doors are locked. And every time you walk up to it, it unlocks. And then you walk uh, away, okay. and then you kind yeah. of... And I, I quite like the blip of a fob. I just sort of mm-hmm. like walk up to a car, blip, in you get, off you go. Okay. I can, I, yep, I can understand that. <laughs> I can understand that. Um, after this who do you think I should talk to next I would say I'd say one of three people I'd say Tim Hutton um, who's on Twitter as at Tim Hutton who I think he does some really interesting stuff he writes um, a car magazine which is kind of a bit more left field than the everyday and he has some he said got some really interesting uh, points of view on cars. I would say potentially Dale Lomas, who is on Twitter at, at Bridge to Gantry, who a few years ago moved out to the Nürburgring, worked as an instructor, done various car-related stuff um, at the Nürburgring and races, and is an all-round fantastic fellow. Or probably my top pick um, would be Jim Cameron, who's the head of CEO of uh, Mission Motorsport, which is the mm-hmm. Forces Motorsport charity. He he does fantastic work with Mission Motorsport. He's a great bloke to talk to, um, and he just has a perspective on life and cars that very few people I've, I've met have. Jim is definitely on the list, the hit list. Um Yes, that, that sounds more sinister than it really is. <laughs> it's actually a spreadsheet because that's not my own role. <laughs> um, but yes, Jim is somebody I definitely want to talk about. And that reminds me, um, because I'm an appalling interviewer, 
I didn't get onto Mission Motorsport, so I'm going to throw out the convention that I normally go to. <laughs> and I know that you um, have been to a few Mission Motorsport events recently-ish. Yeah. Could you let anyone who doesn't know what Mission Motorsport particularly is and what the events were that you went to and what you... Three, three questions. <laughs> I hope you're taking notes. Um, and what you got out of those events what what really came home yeah. from those events for you so mission motorsport is as i say it's the, it's the forces motorsport charity officially it's supported by um help for heroes and what they do is they take people who have been physically or mentally injured in service and they in some cases they help them through rehabilitation they help them into work they have connections in the automotive industry to help them get into work and and kind of find a new purpose in life after coming out of the army and potentially going through really life changing injuries or or, or situations um and they've helped a huge number of people and and the support they have from the car industry is 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 just fantastic um the Events I've been involved with uh, this year, one was Race of Remembrance, which is a thousand mile endurance race that stops at 11 o'clock on the Sunday morning of Remembrance Sunday for a service in the pit lane, Um, which doing that surrounded by people for whom Remembrance Sunday isn't remembering the two world wars. It's remembering people that they've served alongside who've died in, in, in service and what have you is is phenomenally um i don't even know what the word well, I've, is I've, I've seen pictures i've seen pictures of that and that looks a very emotionally charged place to be um uh, it, it, i've i've not uh I, I i you know i'm a soft civilian yeah i've not had the misfortune to go in to experience anything like that. So I can't really imagine what it must be like, but you, you, I saw some of the pictures that came back from, from that. And, um, you know, I, I, it, it, it just looking at a picture, it mm. was incredibly powerful and impactful on me. Mm. What these, these people were, were um, going through, uh, and they must go through often. Yeah. Uh, and and that's uh, you know I, that's one of the few charities that I I support because there are so many charities out there that mm. one could support. But I've seen what they do and the the way they go about it as well. Yes, it, it very is, much so. Uh, almost it's almost refreshing, uh, um, but it, and, and it's almost unique. But the way they go about it is is, is such. It seems to be. So well received by the people who are involved in it, mm. who, whether they're getting the help or whether they're helping, that it seems that that ethos seems to make the world a difference to moving forward. Yes. Oh, very, very much so. Um, and and they do all sorts of of work as well. I mean, you know, getting people into work and 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 having schemes where people can find a purpose is fantastic. Um, they do also do events like the Mission Motorsport Invitational at Goodwood, where car owners volunteer their time and bring some amazing cars but for the people who are attending for the beneficiaries 
in some cases, it can be a chance to meet the charity for the first time. It can be a chance to build on the relationships that they've already got. And in some cases, it's getting people out of recovery centers, getting people out of their 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 day-to-day life, which, you know, might be really, uh, really difficult, might be really challenging for them, and giving them a day out where not only can they experience something different, but they're surrounded by people who've gone through similar experiences to them. And, you know, it can it can really it can make a big difference to them. But also I think I I don't always realise quite how impacting particularly sort of depression and mental trauma can be. And meeting people who have who have gone through um gone through it and they're recovering and you know the change that they have to go through to sort of get get into civilian life um it's you know it, it it's it's overwhelming it's and to be able to do something to sort of help that in any way is you know it it, it, it very very much it kind of feels like the least you can do mm. So um you've um when you've gone and attended these uh, are you um volunteering or are you just enjoying the experience uh are you cause you've been you you're because you're quite a keen photographer as well quite a good photographer um I'd, I'd, I'd like to say by the way thank you um, <laughs> so it, what what why do you go along to um for me, it, it, it's very much it, it's a volunteering effort, and it, it's being able to provide a service that the charity can, can then use. So, with photography, for example, you know the um, whether it's the race of remembrance or whatever, you know, being able to provide photography that the charity can then use for press releases and for for other event imagery, and even just to share with the beneficiaries, it's just a really nice way to use a skill that I've got in a way that actually sort of gives them a benefit and it sort of has a tangible um, product for them at, at, at the end of it. So I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, you know, if I was volunteering and they wanted me to direct traffic into the car park, I would quite happily do that. The fact that I, you know, I get to do something that I enjoy doing and um, I've, you know, I, if, if there's anything I can do, for them in that respect or if i can help other beneficiaries with their photography then yeah it's it's just a benefit really and you know days days taking photos of cars is really good fun (laughs) and yeah being able to do it for a good cause you know it, it it's even better yeah, well, no, I don't, just as a, a very selfish and personal view, I mean, I think that you do because it gives me a glimpse into what goes on during mm. the day and stuff and, and seeing stuff that gets retweeted or seeing the odd um, thing that gets put out on Twitter or something like that. It really does help to bring home how much of a, an impact um, Mission Motorsport is. Uh, and it's, it's definitely a charity that... Um, I, I personally would encourage anyone who can to support in any way that they can support do so because it clearly makes clearly makes a difference. Um, and I hope to get uh, Jim Cameron on soonish um, so that we can 
delve further into this and the, the whys, the what fors, and um, get get some listen firsthand of what difference it does make to people. So, um, so yeah, I, apologies for getting this in the roundabout way, and um, but I, I felt it was it was something I did want to talk to you about because I knew you you, you are involved in it. Mm. So, so there we go. Um, right, so now I've. Uh, wrap the show up in a completely <laughs> backward way um, because hey it's my show I do what I like you know because I'm useless uh, so <laughs> Paxman need not to be um, <laughs> what I'm going to ask now is that it's the last question I ask is um, what are the best ways uh, for people to follow what you do uh, I think the best way best way to follow, follow me is just uh, do so on Twitter um, everything I do sort of ends up being funneled through there so whether it's security or photography or cars or or any of the many and varied things that i'm into um it's just ask at chris ratcliffe on twitter thank you very much for coming on um i've i've had a blast um and i i really could have talked to you for hours and hours and hours about uh, security um let you describe in infinite detail how you um drive your m3 <laughs> uh, and uh, mission motorsport so uh, thank you so much for being on i really do appreciate it and, and i'll let you go and get some sleep now because it's the the we're, we're pushing on now in the <laughs> evening so um really appreciate you coming on and thanks once again chris no problem my pleasure thanks once again to chris for coming on rear view and chatting to me i hope you found the conversation as fascinating as i did uh, even though i did go roundabout roundabouts and roundabouts to get to the points but uh no thank you chris for being so patient with me um if you the listener would like to suggest someone who you think i should talk to on this show please do get in touch if you use the hashtag rearview pod we'll be guaranteed to see it in the motoring podcast towers um to get in touch with me directly if you search for crack windscreen on twitter you will find me there if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, please do go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I know I ask this every week, but I would really appreciate it now that we've just started 2017. As a little present to me, if you could go out and leave a rating and a review, preferably on iTunes, uh, to let me know that you do enjoy this and you do appreciate uh, what's coming out and it's the sort of thing that you're after, that would be really helpful and it, it would uh, make me feel very nice and warm and fuzzy if you did, please. So until next time, that was Chris Ratcliffe. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.